Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Our next guest has been in the leather community for over five years and holds the title of Mr. Long Beach Leather 2018. Originally born in Nicaragua, his mission has been to advocate for inclusivity within the leather community, as well as to bring awareness towards and break down the stigmas associated with mental health. Just a friendly reminder for those just tuning in, this podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. With that said, let's sit back, relax, and get ready for some more leather talk. This is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020, and today we have Louis Ramrod. Hi, Louis. Hey, Brandon. How are you? Doing good. Stuck in quarantine, horny as ever. Aren't we all? <laughs> Aren't we all? Thank, thank goodness for technology, That's right? That's right. <laughs> and Twitter. <laughs> oh, my God. Tell me about it. Well, Louis, before we get into it, um, for those audience members who might not be familiar with you, would you mind giving us just a little snapshot of who you are, please? Absolutely. Uh, so I go by Louis Ramrod. Um, that has been my my scene name, or as I like to call it, my stage name uh, for a while. But my actual name is Luis. Um, I am 47 years old. I'll be 48 in October. I am cisgender, gay male, mm-hmm. uh, Latino. I was originally born in Nicaragua and uh, immigrated to the States uh, when I was a kid. I've been in the community, I would say, for about, well, I think you and I had a conversation about the fact that my, it's my belief that all gay men are kinky and all gay men are somewhat deviants like us in the leather <laughs> community. Uh-huh. But I've been officially in the community for, I, I would say, about maybe uh, five years is when I started attending quote-unquote leather events. Okay. Although I, I did go to other events that I think I, I would consider kinky when I was in my 20s. I used to be Mr. Long Beach Leather. Uh, I had that title in, in 20, I got the title in 2018, and I competed at IML in 2019, uh, which is when my, my year ended. And I mm-hmm. think you you had my title son on, on your show mm-hmm. uh, a couple of episodes earlier, Mr. Long Beach Leather 2019, Eric. So mm-hmm. that, I think, is, is a little bit about me in a nutshell. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, <clears throat> welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to have you on because I think it's it's really important that we hear from other people from across all the generations. And it's really interesting that you chose the, the name Ramrod. Can I ask you, what is the story behind your scene name? <laughs> it's actually really funny. Um, I have a really good friend who lives in San Francisco. Uh-huh. And, geez, I think it must have been about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, we were in Palm Springs for Pride, and uh, we were walking out of a bar. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we may or may not have been intoxicated with alcohol. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, we started just talking about a 
bunch of bullshit. I think we were going to meet a guy in our hotel room for a threesome. And he was like, hey, let's come up with porn star names. Oh, my gosh. And so we had been on a trip to Costa Rica several years earlier. And my friend is, is pretty hung. He has a really nice, beautiful, uncut dick. And one of the guys that we messed around uh, in Costa Rica called him El Caballo because his dick was, <laughs> was nice and big. Oh, my God. So I was like, oh, my God, your name can be Ruben Caballo. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, and you'll be Louis Ramrod. <laughs> oh, my God. And so I've had that name <laughs> since then. And every once in a while... Well, actually, when we when we would talk to each other, we would we would often refer to ourselves with what we were calling our porn star names. Uh-huh. And um, <laughs> I would get uh, notes every once in a while in the email I addressed to Mr. Louis Ramrod. Oh my God! From San Francisco. <laughs> so I've had it since then, and you know, it just kind of seemed appropriate <laughs> for a stage and scene name, so I've kept it. Well, that's that's a cute story. Um, <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be something else, but, you know, I'm surprised every day. <laughs> hey, I, you know, I am not as hung as my friend, but I'm there. <laughs> not, so, yeah. not quite a horse, but... <laughs> Ramrod, it works, too. It gets rammed into, it's, into warm places. It's how you it use it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, it's interesting that you that that name came up as like a porn name, and and you know, kind of all joking aside, the Ramron. I don't know if you know is is a historic gay like leather scene bar in New York. Um, had you made that connection at that point? Florida, actually. Yeah, there's a, there's one in Florida, the Ramrod. Yeah, the reason I know of the Ramrod is because well, have you ever seen that movie? Um, why can't I think of the name? Everyone hated it when it came out. It's about leather with the guy from... Um, cruising? Cruising, yes, cruising. Yes. Have you ever seen Cruising? I have seen it. And I remember seeing images of the bar Ramrod in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's immediately what I think of when I yeah. see well, it. It's, it's funny because there's another one in, in, in Florida, and there is a Mr. Ramrod leather. Uh-huh. Uh, and I actually have a, a brother that competed at IML uh, who was Mr. Ramrod. And I was like... Oh my God! You are named after me, <laughs> <laughs> and so we had this like little moment where we both started laughing, and uh, it was it was kind of cool because that that almost created like a little bonding mo- moment, and we've we've remained in touch ever since. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, there is a ramrod that currently exists in in Florida. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Well, let's get to know you a little bit more. So uh, how, I mean, I don't remember. Did you say your age? Yes, Sonny, I'll be 47. And I heard you say about interviewing previous generations. And <laughs> well, you're... I am not going to take that as an offense you're... or as a remark, you know, at my not. age. But yeah, no, I'm 47 and I'm going to be 48 in October. So okay. um, I'm, getting, I'm getting towards my 50s. All right. Well, I, I'll, I'll jokingly say you're almost old enough to um, to be with me because I, I'm, I'm a daddy's boy. When I was like 19, 20, I was hooking up with guys in their 50s because it was just my, my thing. So you're almost there, Louie. Oh, damn it. I thought I was already there, though. <laughs> All this flirting for nothing. Oh, gosh. Uh, our listeners are going to be like, shut up, Brandon. Get to the <laughs> interview. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, so you're 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 in your forties. Then when did you first 
realize for yourself that you were gay or something other than straight? You know, I, I always knew I was different. Ever since I was a little kid, I just didn't have a word for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember being in, I think it was preschool or kindergarten when I was in Nicaragua, because mm-hmm. uh, I, came, I came from, from Nicaragua when I was nine. And I remember that we used to bring lunch with us in our little lunch boxes. And there used to be this kid that would sit next to me and have lunch with me almost every day. And every once in a while, he would reach over and start kind of playing with my earlobes. And he would start caressing them and telling me how soft they were. And that would send shivers throughout my entire body. And I couldn't figure out why, right? Because Mm -hmm. there were people that, that would you know, physically touch me in many different ways. Other kids would touch me, but for some reason, this just felt so, I guess, sensual, although I had no idea what that word meant back then. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that was me being turned on as a little kid because I remember that I would look forward to lunch every day <laughs> so that I could have my earlobes played with. And, you know, to this day as an adult, that's that's one of my spots. Uh, you know, if somebody wants to get me going, they play with my earlobes and and it, it kind of, you know, turns the dial for me. That's really cute, though, Louis. I mean, th- th- it was sort of like, a, you know, we all have those like kind of romances back mm-hmm. in like fourth, fifth grade or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's so sweet. It was sweet. And. I mean, obviously, it, it was memorable because it's it's been imprinted in my in my mind. But as a kid, I I was never into the things that boys were supposed to be into. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember that my father, my dad, uh, wanted me to play soccer because that's what all kids in Nicaragua did. They play soccer. All the boys did, and I fucking hated soccer. Mm-hmm. I hated the thought of like. Uh, and before you you make a joke, what is it? I think it was it was uh, uh, clueless. I hated the thought of having balls thrown at me. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, right. Uh, you know, he would make me play soccer, and uh, I sucked. You know, um, especially when they would have me be the goalie. Um, but I was always more attracted to being at home, playing with my sister's toys, and. Whenever I would be in a group of kids, I gravitated towards the girls um, because the boys were always trying to just kind of outmatch one another, and that just wasn't my thing. I came to the States when I was nine, and I still gravitated towards having more uh, female friends than male friends, and um, had several experiences similar to the ones that I had as a kid where you know, I was not a uh, an English speaker, so they had put me in, in those uh, ESL classes, which uh, for anybody that doesn't know, that means English as a second language. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was back in the main classroom, there was this uh, Latin kid that's you know, was bilingual, and he would help me with my homework sometimes. And I would once again become just flustered with all these intense feelings that I had no idea what they meant, but when this kid would sit next to me and actually help me go through the homework 
and try to explain it to me in Spanish. And every once in a while, he would kind of touch me as I, as he was reaching for something on the desk. You know, I would I would get excited, and and mm -hmm. and by then I was already starting to, you know, this this must have been in like fifth uh, fifth grade by now. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was about ten. Um, you know, at that time, you already start to some degree uh, becoming familiar with what your dick is for, and the fact that your dick gets hard. Uh, when when you get excited about things, mm -hmm. and so I, I do recall that uh, having this kid be almost like my my tutor, my interpreter, used to just turn the fuck out of me, turn me on. But again, I had no clue what it was. I just knew that I would see all the all the guys, all the kids, try, all the boys trying to uh, impress the, the the girls in the class, and I I had absolutely no interest in that. I was absolutely happy sitting back and having this kid explain my homework to me in Spanish and kind of sitting with those those feelings of excitement uh, that I, I would get having him next to me. It sounds like you were really in touch with your sexuality. I mean, whether or not you knew it from like a really young age. Well, I just wanted to take a quick little pause right here as I did want to put forward a disclaimer. The following discussion may be triggering for some people. We will be having a discussion on a very sensitive topic regarding sexual abuse. If you would like to skip ahead, now is the time to do so to around the 26 minute mark. However, I do hope that our discussion today does help some people and bring forth awareness. With that said, we are going to resume with our talk for today. Yeah, um, I mean, so I'll... I'll disclose this, and, and again, this this may be may be triggering uh, to some some listeners. But um, I was molested by uh, a family member when I was a kid, and um, I think that that experience uh, sexualized me at a very young age, hmm. and it actually made me aware of feelings. I would say that. I think most kids at that age don't know how to process. Right. And so, yeah, so I was, I was really in tune with that. Um, I, I, I still don't think I would describe them as uh, sexual arousal because although they felt different than other feelings that I think I felt as a, as, as a, as a young boy, I still didn't know what, what sex was, right, mm -hmm. and what being turned on was. I just knew it felt good, and I knew that it was something that I, I longed for, and that uh, that I look forward to feeling. Well, okay, so let's unpack a few things here. So you said when you were growing up, you okay. Well, actually, let's let's go back just to to your experience um, as a child. Mm -hmm. When you were when you were molested, did you know that that was did you know that that was something that was negative that happened to you at that time, or did you process that later um, on in life? I processed it later on in life. You know, I so I knew that it was something that wasn't normal because I remember it really impacted my personality. Hmm. Prior to that happening, I used to be um, really outgoing. I used to have more of a almost like a leader alpha mentality when it came with my friends. I was always the one that led. 
and that made plans for everybody and the one that people followed. Mm-hmm. And I remember that after I had that experience, which uh, wasn't a single experience, it was something that happened uh, for a period of time, my personality completely changed. Mm-hmm. And I became uh, very shy, very introverted, very reclusive. You know, whereas before I was somebody that would stick up for myself and uh, I wouldn't let anybody, you know, fuck with me. Uh, Again, as I mentioned, the kids used to be very, very macho. They would try to pick fights and try to assert their manliness over one another. Um, And I remember that I used to be able to kind of stick up for myself and stand up for myself. And after I had that experience, or I should say those experiences, I remember that I was the kid that everybody kind of bullied and everybody picked on. Hmm. Uh, it's almost as if something broke inside me, and I wasn't who I was before anymore. Um, at the time, I didn't really uh, know that this was happening. This is something that I was able to process through therapy as an adult, Mm -hmm. but, you know, just being able to go back in hindsight and and just kind of look at my childhood and how things changed, I could very clearly see that there was a difference in who I was and who I became after that event. So at the time when you're a child, you didn't necessarily connect that these experiences kind of changed you until later on in life, you realize that those things, I see. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, when, well, before we move on, I'm just curious to know, I mean, where are you with that today? I mean, do you feel like you've found ways to kind of conquer whatever negative, you know, energy has been put in your life because of those? No, absolutely. I mean, I think it's given me, um, it's given me a lot of empathy for others. Mm -hmm. You know, looking at some of the history in my family, I know that that family member was molested by another family member. Mm. So it's almost like a cycle, you know, it, it, and at some point it, it has to stop with somebody, right? Yeah. So um, I'm glad it stopped with me. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I'm glad that, you know, that as an adult I was able to process all those feelings, all that shame, anger to a certain degree, you know, that I had because I did you know, for a while, I, I, I was upset at the fact that in my mind, it, it kind of changed my childhood for me. Yeah. Um, and I came to terms with the fact that all those things, you know, all the experiences that we have in life, they all help to mold us into the person that we're supposed to be. So I, I feel that that experience has actually made me become more empathetic towards, uh, towards others. And I kind of feel that and this is going to sound kind of crazy, that there's a part of me that's grateful for all of that because um, I'm very happy with who I am as a man right now and how, who I, I become as a, as a human being. And I can't help to think that had I not gone through those experiences that I probably wouldn't be the person that I am today. So I think therapy has actually helped me come to terms with it, accept it, forgive forgive that that individual, forgive myself, which, you know, I think when when we realize that something like that has happened to us, we go, well, at least I did, I shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize. 
I went through a period was uh, where I was angry at myself. You know, mm -hmm. why didn't do you, do you do something different? Why didn't you tell somebody? Why did you keep it to yourself? And you know, I had to go through the process of forgiving me, forgiving me for one having been so hard on myself over the experience, but also because that kid didn't really know any better, didn't know what to do, didn't couldn't have changed things, and essentially was somebody that survived an experience that they had no choice mm -hmm. over. Uh, but that luckily that experience actually made him become what I think is a, is, a, is a better human being. Well, there's definitely, I mean, there's a few things I'm picking up on here. Uh, one is, I, I find it interesting that you felt the need to blame yourself for a time. And, you know, I've, I've never gone through an experience like that, so I, I can't really 100% relate. But I wonder yeah. how many listeners right now are, are hearing your voice and nodding their heads saying, yeah, that, that's me or that was me. Um, for, for those listeners, I mean, do you have any words of encouragement or advice on, you know, how you got through blaming yourself for all of that? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the first thing we have to do is just accept the fact that we experienced that event and accept the circumstances around it. Um, you know, as I'm going to use the word victim, which I, I think for some people it may be triggering, but I think that in as part of our healing process, we go through that stage where we realize that we were victimized by somebody, that we were the victim to an act that we didn't choose to experience, that we didn't choose to have done done to us, or, or an act or, or a situation that we didn't choose to be in. And I think it's healthy to go through that phase where you realize that you had been victimized. Mm -hmm. Because by coming to terms with that, then it's easier for you to accept the next phase of the healing process, which is to some degree anger, you know, uh, and that anger, again, in my case, it was aimed at both the, the person that perpetrated the act, but also there was some anger at myself. And uh, there was anger at family members, the caretakers, my parents, uh, and other people that, you know, I felt at that time were there to protect me from having these things happen to me. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier to you, there was anger aimed at myself for not knowing any better, right? Not mm -hmm. knowing uh, a better way to, you know, it's, and, I, and I think other, other, other listeners can, can relate to that. Uh, you know, we, we get anger at, angry at ourselves for Say, you know, having been in, in that location, having gotten ourselves in, into that situation, um, I think our brain just starts kind of going over all of these scenarios or these could-haves, would-haves, should-haves. And, um, you know, it's, it's part of what you have to go through to get to the point where you accept what happened and you realize that you're, an actu you're actually a survivor of that situation that you had the strength and the power to overcome all that, overcome the sadness, the anger, uh, feeling like you were a victim, and accepting that that experience is just one component of who you are as a person, mm -hmm. uh, and that you are able to take that experience and grow from it, 
and learn how to become a better human being because of it. So it's it's part of, you know, how there's there's the grieving process. I think we go through that, a similar process. When we have traumatic experiences like that happen, um, you know, but I, I guess to, to anyone who's listening, uh, one, know that you're not alone, that there's a lot of us out there that have gone through similar situations. Uh, know that there is support out there, that uh, the community supports you, I support you, and that there is a lot of resources to help you through this healing process. Um, you know, I'm an advocate for therapy, uh, for mental health, which I think we'll probably touch on uh, a little later. But um, all these things, all these tools that you have out there, uh, take advantage of them mm -hmm. because they will make the healing a lot easier and it will help you get to the other end of this darkness that you may be experiencing a lot quicker. Uh, but there's no know that there's a way out and know that uh, although it may seem daunting to you right now, you know, every little step that you take towards getting closer to that light will pay off in the end. And it's going to make you a much better person that you, than you think you are right now. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing those words, Louis. And I'm really thankful that you have this experience to share with us. I mean, the experience of getting through it, you know. Of course. Because there, there are a lot of listeners out there I know who have gone through similar things. So thank you for that. Um, I want to pivot back over to a little bit about your childhood. You said when you were growing up, you you spent a lot of time hanging out with, you know, the girls. You, you didn't really see yourself with the guys. And, That's right. Uh, I, I could totally relate to that. And I remember growing up and my, my parents wondering, like, why is he hanging out with all the girls? I, <laughs> I mean, did your parents ever question that? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I, I remember that my, my mom and dad started taking me to a, a psychologist. And I had no idea why mm -hmm. they were taking me to a psychologist. You know, they, they would tell me that it was, the, you know, to help me deal with, you know, whatever I may be experiencing through life. But I just don't remember ever asking <laughs> for a psychologist. <laughs> They're just like, oh man, he's hanging out yeah. with chicks. He needs a therapist. And, <laughs> you know, as an adult, I remember after I, I came out to my mom, she once told me that she had always known that I was different hmm. and that her and my dad were worried uh, when I was a kid and they would see that I was so shy and quiet and I didn't want to do all these things that boys did uh, and that they, um, they thought that going to see that therapist would help me. You know, and mind you, at that time, they didn't know that I had experience, uh, you know, the, the whole deal with being molested. Uh, so I, and, and to be honest with you, I, I, I don't even know if it, if it ever came up during therapy. Mm -hmm. I just remember that my mom said that when we were done with that, that cycle of, of sessions with the therapist, the therapist told them that I was a normal, normal kid. Hmm. and that they had nothing to worry about. 
but you know she did confess to me that the 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 reason why they had sent me to therapy as a kid was because they saw that I was different from all the other boys that I was different from my other cousins that I was different from the 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 other kids in our in our in our neighborhood you know that were uh more the rough and tumble kind of kids you know that were coming home with uh with scuffed knees and and mud all over their faces and I I wasn't I wasn't that. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. different. Now, when was, at what point did you come out to your parents? So I, I came out to my parents when I was 17, and it was on National Coming Out Day. Hmm. Um, I had just started college, and uh, I remember that I had been walked, and I went, to, um, I went to Cal Poly Pomona, uh, if anybody's wondering where college was. But um, I was walking through the through the campus, and I forgot what what it was called. The Gay Lesbian Straight Alliance. Uh, it had a name, but I can't remember it. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a booth set out, and it was like National Coming Out Day, yeah. uh, with really beautiful rainbow-colored balloons and streamers and all kinds of stuff. And I I went and I stopped by and. I got a pamphlet about, I think it had to do something with, you know, are you questioning your sexuality, blah, blah, blah. Here are resources for you to, to follow. And, you know, I was still living at home back then when, when I started because it was my freshman year in college. And I remember going home and my mom was in, in her bedroom uh, with my sister. My dad was doing something else at the time. And I remember going to my mom and saying, hey, I, I have a question for you. And she was like, okay, what? She's like, what if I told you that I was gay? And she kind of froze and told my sister to leave the room. Uh, my sister, mind you, is four years younger than me. So at the time, she must have been about 13 or 14. And uh, after my sister left, she, she, she said to me, but, but you're not. So why, why ask the question if you're not? And I said to her, well, what if I am? She said, you're not. And I'm like, but, but what if I am, Mom? Well, how, how, what, what would you, how would you react to that? And she once again told me, there's nothing to talk about because you're not. Wow. She was really afraid. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I dropped it and went back to my room. Um, I was working on a project. I'm an architect, so we used to have projects, you know, that were due uh, all the time. Uh, yeah. At the time, actually, though, since it was my freshman year, I, <laughs> I, I, had, I, I, was, I had tons of homework anyways, and I went back into my room. And sometime later, I, 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 I hear a knock on the door, and it was my dad. And he came in, and he was like, hey, I, your mom told me uh, about the conversation that you guys had. You want to talk about that? And I was like, well, you know, I, I've been questioning who I am. I'm, I've been questioning lots of things about who I am. And, you know, one of the things that I, I've been questioning is my sexuality because I, I find guys attractive, you know, mm-hmm. and I haven't put a label on it. I, I, I haven't been calling me gay, but I think that I may be gay. I, I don't remember exactly what else we talked about, but... I do know that after that discussion, my mom completely changed, and my mom became the biggest bitch <laughs> in the planet. And wow. um, 
I was actually really surprised that out of my parents, my dad was more accepting than my mother was. My mother fought tooth and nail. Yeah. You know, it, it got really ugly with my parents. My mom forbade me to do anything that was related to being gay. As long as I was living in under their roof, you know, I, yeah. I couldn't do any of the things that would be considered gay, going places, seeing people, talking to people. It's so funny, though, that you say this because, I mean, I grew up Catholic Latino also. And so sorry about that. It's so weird how like how many parallels there are to your story. And I thought my mother, who was my best friend growing up, would be the one to be like, oh, it's okay. Like, that's fine. Like, we just have one more thing in common or something. Like, we're both into dudes, you know. But it was my father who became really, I mean, yeah. Much more accepting. My mother fought, like you said, tooth and nail. I remember I had a friend come over, and he always, we always did this. We're just friends. He's straight. Like, he's married and everything. We would put mm-hmm. our, our arms around each other, like each other's shoulders, as friends do. And when he left, my mother sat me down and had a talk with me, and she said that that's not okay. Not in my house. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. whoa, like, we weren't making out. <laughs> yeah. You know? But um, anyways, I just thought that was interesting, the parallels no, there. You know, I, and, and, I, and, I, and I can share that. I mean, I, I can, I'll, I'll share this with you. You know, my, my mom went as far as, and actually it wasn't my mommy, it ended up being my parents, right? But they went mm-hmm. as far as hiring somebody to follow me around uh, and give them a report on, on what I was and wasn't doing. Wow. And, you know, this happened, I, I started college at 17. My birthday's in October, right? Mm-hmm. So I was 17 when I started, and uh, I turned 18 in October. And so I had met a guy <laughs> in drama class because that was one of the electives of that I chose to Of course you did. <laughs> of course I did, right? <laughs> a homo in drama class. <laughs> and, um, you know, we went to Oz uh, I don't know if you remember Oz. It used to be in Orange County um, off the five. It's long gone, but, you know, they used to have an 18 and overnight. You know, so I started hanging out with this guy. Uh, he wasn't really my boyfriend, but he was the first gay guy that I had met in, in college. And I found it so interesting that when I would get home, my parents knew or my mom knew where I had been, who I had seen. And, you know, and, and I was like, how the fuck? Do you guys know all this information? Oh, my God. And so then eventually they told me that, that they had hired somebody to track me down to make sure that I wasn't, I wasn't hanging out with anybody who was gay. Well, because gay <laughs> was bad. Well, my, I, I, I guess, okay, so let me ask you a, a question here. Yeah. Uh, from your own perspective and understanding, what was it, you think, that made your parents so fearful of homosexuality? Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you, and it, it was, it was, it was ignorance partly, and it was AIDS. Hmm. You know, you got to remember, this is the early 90s. Uh, men were dying in the hundreds, and there was still no cure for AIDS. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother especially associated being gay with AIDS. And I, I think in her mind, uh, she thought that by the mere fact of me saying that I was gay, that all of a sudden I was going to be HIV positive mm-hmm. and die, right? And obviously, as a, as a mother, she didn't want to lose her son. Uh, 
and you know there was a lot of a lot of mis just misunderstanding of what being gay was yeah um and so I think as 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 a mother, I think mothers take it really hard. I've I, I've learned uh, because they feel that since they are the quote unquote feminine component of the the parental uh, you know couple, that the fact that you are gay must be because they did something wrong to dilute your masculinity by in, injecting you with more of their femininity. Oh, uh, wow. And so I think mothers take it really difficult and really hard because of that reason. But I think my parents, to a certain degree, are, are proof that you can become educated and you can become an advocate for your kids because, um, you know, I, I'm telling you all these horrible things that happened. I mean, I honestly, I almost left the house and went to live with a, a guy that I knew that was also gay that I had been to high school with mm -hmm. uh, because life at home was, was just horrendous uh i mean i i remember one time i had been to Oz with this guy that i met in college and on the way back home uh we had pulled over on a very dark desolate road and we had been making out he had given me head in the car and uh of course i happened to have been wearing a pair of black jeans and i came all over my jeans and i remember getting home and my mom was waiting for me and and she was like, where were you at? And I'm like, oh, no, nowhere. I was just hanging out with friends. <laughs> Yet there's dried cum and all over And she turns your... <laughs> on the lights and I have cum all over <laughs> my jeans. <laughs> you dirty <laughs> slut. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm giving you a golf clap for that one. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, that it was always like that, right? Uh -huh. Every Every time something like that would happen, she would just go crazy on me. But... But again, I, I say that I say all that to to kind of let you know that, uh, and let your listeners know that parents need time. Mm -hmm. uh, we got to remember that as gay, lesbian, queer, uh, questioning individuals, trans, non-binary, uh, it took us a very long time to come to terms with who we who we were, uh, and it took us a very long time to come out. And uh, I think it takes parents. A long time as well to come to terms with the fact that the person that they thought you were going to be isn't the person that you are mm -hmm. so it's it's difficult right when we're in the midst of everything and we're living through that experience uh, that can often become really chaotic and traumatic to us uh, to say oh, okay I'm just gonna give my mom and dad time they'll come around because, you know, we, we just kind of opened up to them about one of the most intimate and most vulnerable aspects of our life, our sexuality. Mm -hmm. And to have gotten that negative reception kind of shuts us almost back in the closet to some degree. Um, but, you know, I, my parents are, are living proof that, you know, that parents do come around. I, mm -hmm. I, uh, we actually, I should say we because I was part of it, you know, we used to be part of a PFLAG group that met with Spanish-speaking families that was held at the Bienestar in East LA. And my parents were the ones that actually sought out the group. Hmm. And they had been going for a while to try to help other parents come to terms and accept, you know, their, their kids. And they eventually, you know, told me, hey, it would be a good idea for you to come. 
because a lot of the the parents that are attending the groups they have a preconception of what their kids will, are going to turn out like if they're gay and you know they're they told me you know you're you're a pretty well balanced individual and so it would be good for them to meet a gay man that has their shit his shit together you know yeah. that got through school has a job uh you know and and you know isn't the stereotypical uh gay person that they may have in their mind that their kids are are going to turn out to be yeah and so we did that support group for several years and um you know i was really proud of my my parents for doing that because had had they you know had had you told me back when i was 17 18 that i was going to be sitting in a p flag group with my parents i would have said you're full of shit yeah <laughs> that's never going to happen but but it it did and um my parents have become almost like surrogate parents to a lot of my friends that at various times in their life had not have the best relationship with their biological parents mm-hmm. you know they my my husband is accepted 100% by them uh he's always been treated with respect and uh as part of the family and so have previous other boyfriends that i've had um you know it's it's me being gay is not an issue anymore and it hasn't for several years but um you know it did start rough and it took some time for I think both our wounds to heal mm-hmm. and for both of us to start accepting one another uh and you know to see that my homosexuality which I know is not a word that we use very often but me being gay me being queer uh wasn't a factor that was going to impact our relationship mm-hmm. well, I appreciate that you kind of bring to light the the concept of like well it took you 17 years to come to your own understanding it's yeah. going to take parents i mean at least half that time i mean this whole your whole life they've known you to be one person and now you've changed yeah. the idea of who you are to them in their mind and I, and i think part of what made it difficult to brandon is the fact that when i was like 16 ish i had a girlfriend for a while what they didn't know though was that My girlfriend's fantasy was to see me have sex with uh her ex-boyfriend who was also questioning oh his sexuality. Oh my god. Uh yeah, it was it was pretty intense. Uh yeah. So yeah, so there was this there was this club in Pasadena called Maryland's uh that was 16 and over and I remember that on Fridays they would play uh alternative music and on Saturdays it was like hip hop and and house and disco. Uh I used to be <laughs> I used to be part of the alternative group in high school which mm-hmm. I guess was the catch-all for kids that were weird and didn't quite fit in with everybody else. Uh I was a big Morrissey fan too, uh which I guess you would expect from a Latino that lived in the San Gabriel Valley. Uh but we used to go to Maryland on Fridays uh when it was alternative li- night and it was always me another friend from high school that was very gender fluid back then and some of my girlfriends from from high school mm-hmm. uh, which were all part of that alternative group on campus and you know i met this girl uh i actually think she was younger than 16 and i don't know how the hell she used to get in there um but she was there with this this beautiful beautiful guy uh 
again, this is late 80s, um, you know, early 90s, late 80s. He had uh, shoulder length hair, was always uh, wearing uh, super tight little uh, uh, spandex looking shirts, which were the shit back then. <laughs> and his pants with a lot of jewelry, uh, you know, think Madonna Vogue video, the dancers in the background. Uh, and she was there with another girl. Um, and, you know, we became friends and uh, it turned out that this guy was her ex-boyfriend. He had been questioning his sexuality for a while. Um, and so, you know, after we were friends for some time and, uh, you know, she was like, I want to see you guys make out. I want to see you two kiss. What? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, yeah. And so, you know, I remember having that moment with, with this guy and, uh, it was kind of surreal, you know, almost like from a movie. What was where, that? Wait, so you kissed you know, him? You know, like when you see the girl and she grabs one guy with one arm, the <laughs> other guy with the other and kind of pushes that to get pushes us together oh so we're God. face to face and she was like okay i want to see you guys make out and so i remember making out with this guy uh and you know getting a hard on which by then i already you know i had been masturbating for several years so i knew that when my dick got hard it meant that i was it meant that i was turned on oh my god uh, wait a second hold up <laughs> wait was this the uh, first time that you made out with a dude yeah Oh my God, that is so sexy, actually. Like, it was odd. I mean, that I your girlfriend of, kind of like I, instigated the whole thing. I remember that there was this uh, industrial song playing in the background. Uh, it was Join in the Chant by Knights or Ebb, which has a really throbbing beat. And fuck, yeah, I tasted man for the first time. And it was nice. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, I ended up making out with her, too. So we had this very, I mean, I guess you wouldn't, I didn't know what being polyamorous was back then. But, you know, we were very sexually fluid and uh -huh. sexually open where, you know, we, we kind of had no, no labels to a certain degree. And, and we weren't constrained to that whole, you know, couple means two, boyfriend <laughs> and girlfriend male female and you know it's it was a really hot experience and i mean obviously that happened before national coming out day so i think that that really helped uh confirm it for you have me question my sexuality yeah, yeah. that by the time that i got to to college i was like hmm, i don't think i'm straight <laughs> <laughs> well do you do you think that in some ways that kind of arrangement that you had with your girlfriend at the time sort of set the stage for the way you um, view relationships for yourself today? You know, probably because, um, you know, my husband and I have an open marriage mm -hmm. and it's not the first open relationship that I've had. You know, I I think that sometimes as human beings, we, we, uh, we put too much on our partners and we expect too much from our partners, from one single partner to be able to meet all our needs, mm -hmm. you know, emotional, uh, physical, financial, everything. And I, I, I've, I've found that having that fluidity, that openness does help to address some of those issues. Plus, it just kind of helps both of us experience life, I think, better and to the fullest. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't thought of that, but, but you're right. I mean, I think that that might have been 
what planted that seed and that, that you know, led me to view relationships in a very non-traditional way. It seems like that, I mean, <laughs> for what it's worth, that was maybe, was that maybe one of your first like kind of kinky experiences making out with a dude in front of your girlfriend like that in a club? I mean, like... I think so. I think so. I mean, it, it and it wasn't the last, uh, I guess, kinky experience that I had at a club. Um, you know, I, as, as a gay man in the 90s, I think uh, nightlife was one of the the biggest outlets that we had, uh, you know, it was it was a place where we went to be seen and to to see one another and to experience new things. So, uh, I, I you know I, when I was thinking back prior to uh, sitting for the interview, I started to actually realize just how much that nightlife slash club culture kind of influenced who I became as, as, as an, as a man, as an adult, you know? Yeah. What, what, what is, what was that nightlife like for you? I mean, what were your other experiences that kind of took you to where you are now? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, I turned 18 in at the end of 1990. So that's when I, I really was able to start going to bars, mm-hmm. uh, to those that were 18 and over. When I turned 21, I was able to actually have access to uh, an even wider group of events that happened, you know, because there were, there were, there were 21 and over events. And uh, one of my favorites, which I kind of stumbled into by accident, was a club that used to happen at 7969, which is that club that's right next to where the French Quarter, French Market used to be on Santa Monica Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And once a month, they would host a club called Cinematic, which was a fetish kink themed event. It's no longer there, so I think I can say the name of the bar. But the way that 7969 used to be laid out was that, you know, you would come in and there would be a lounge area to your left with couches and things for for people to sit on. And there was the bar uh, right in front of that. To the right was the dance floor, which had a small stage. And as you walked towards the back of the club, uh, you had the restrooms. Mm-hmm. But there used to be a back room uh, in that bar that wasn't always open. So when cinematic would happen, that back room would be turned into a dungeon where they would do various types of demos back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were always doms and doms doing impact play, bondage. It was actually pretty freaking unbelievable because they literally had the walls covered with all kinds of implements to do any and all types of torture and fun things to to bodies that you can imagine. The club used to play industrial music, which has always been one of my favorites. It was a lot of electronic, uh, hard beats, techno, industrial. And at midnight, they would do a kink slash fetish themed show or demonstration on the bar. I used to go with some of my friends that I had met. All of them were gay. The the, the club wasn't necessarily gay. It was very open. Anybody attended. You would see straight couples, gay couples, single kinky people, people that like me that first time that had no idea what the fuck they were walking into, <laughs> but ended up staying and liking it and then coming back. What was that performance like? Oh, well, I, I was going to tell you about one of the ones that I think was 
the most impressive and one of the ones that actually like left me kind of gawking and I think planted a seed for me to actually want to explore kink a little further. Uh -huh. So, you know, the way that, that this particular performance started was that these two guys came on stage and they had uh, metal drums, you know, kind of like what you would put liquids in. Mm -hmm. uh, and they set them on either end of the stage and they poured alcohol on the top of the drum. And then they took these two drumsticks and started beating the drums, like uh, the, the metal drums, like, like they were actual drums. So mm -hmm. every time they would hit the drum, the alcohol would splash and everybody who was in the audience would e either get sprayed with the alcohol or at least get the scent of the alcohol, you know, because it, it would be splashing. So it was this very tribal, primal, boom, 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 boom. And they start beating these drums and then they bring on stage this guy, a really beautiful boy, ripped little body, uh, wasn't muscular. He had a collar and his hands were bound behind him. Mm -hmm. And this really, really beautiful dominatrix brings him on stage uh, by the collar. And then when she gets him up, she unbinds him and has him sitting up against the wall, leaning against the wall. And somebody else comes on stage and, and brings a box full of things. I didn't know what the hell they were initially. Opens it up and starts taking out a bunch of hypodermic needles. Oh my God. And so this, this boy is standing up against the wall, uh, wearing nothing but a jock strap and these combat boots. And the dominatrix starts doing needle play on him. And she starts actually putting the needles down his chest in two rows. Oh my God. One by one. By Wait, one. had you seen piercing like this before? No, I had never seen it. Oh, wow. I mean, this is before I myself had any piercings. And so she starts doing these two rows of needles down his chest. And then the other guy hands her a thread. It was, it was thick enough for you to see it, but uh -huh. uh, thin enough to actually not be a rope, right? And I remember that it was, it was like a burgundy color and she starts threading or actually weaving the thread around the needles. So it starts creating almost like a corset oh. Uh, you know, uh, switch back all the way down his, his chest and his abdomen. And then they start pulling out these fucking lemons from that container. And each lemon was attached to a hook. And they start hanging the hooks from the thread. Oh my God. And when they were done hanging all the lemons from the hook, the drums start beating faster. And the guy who had been, who had all this done to him, starts jumping up and down and dancing on stage. He would, he started really slow, but store, you know, slowly progressively started just jumping higher and, and harder to the point where the lemons start coming off of him. And with it, they start bringing some of the needles off. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden you start getting blood that starts dripping down his, his chest where the needles had been pulled off and all the while the drums are beating the alcohol splashing and you have this very i guess clinical smell it was like a 4d experience oh, wow. where you're smelling the alcohol 
and you're seeing this guy having things torn off his body. And I remember that Dominatrix is just looking at him like, you're such a good boy. She had this look of like, I own you, bitch. And at the same time, like, yeah, you're doing exactly what I want you to do. Like, she had full control over him. Wow. And um, it shocked me. It shocked me because it was something I had never seen. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, the connection between him and the dominatrix was amazing. Just the power play between them, like, really turned me on. And at the same time, it also shocked me because there was blood all over mm -hmm. him. And you got to remember that in the early 90s, blood was still lethal because blood was the pathogen that carried HIV. And, mm -hmm. and there was still no cure for HIV. So I think this was almost like a statement about, fuck you, fuck all this bullshit about disease. You still got to worship the humanity in us. And that mm -hmm. blood, that thing that connects us all together. So I left that night and I fucking came back <laughs> almost wow. every month. I mean, the way you describe it is so immersive. There's so many senses that are being stimulated, oh, yeah. even as an audience member. I mean, the smells, the sounds, the tactileness of just the whole performance. Yeah, it was it was beautiful. And... And that was kind of like my intro to kink, the physical, I guess, mm -hmm. introduction to kink. I think I mentioned to you that, well, maybe I didn't. My boyfriend, which I also had at around that time, he was a photographer and he started exposing me to, he was also very, very kinky. I mean, um, he's the one that bought me my Prince Albert as a birthday present. And, you know, he had all these photography books, uh, a lot of Maplethorpe. Mm -hmm. and, and others that started depicting kink and fetish uh, amongst gay men in the underground clubs, excuse me, in New York, L.A., and, and everywhere. And so I started becoming very enamored with that, the visual aspect of it, the mm -hmm. visual aspect of bondage, the visual aspect of leather, uh, of corsetry, of, of gags, of, of implements, whips, paddles. And I think that my first step towards that was, was getting my dick pierced and getting mm -hmm. that, that Prince Albert. And I never thought that I would get my dick pierced. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> my boyfriend has had his dick pierced. He actually had an ampelang, which is the one that goes across the dickhead, not through the urethra. Oh, and okay. I was fascinated by it. You know, at the time I was, I was still flip-fucking, I was, I was versatile. Uh, and I remember the first time he fucked me with it, and I could feel the the metal beads going up my asshole, and how much I had to breathe through that to be able to take his dick in, mm. and seeing how much he enjoyed coming when I would give him head, and uh, feeling the the metal in my mouth, like really turned me on, and yeah. so when he said, hey, uh, you should get your dick pierced too, and, and I was like, I don't know. He's like, yeah, I think you really enjoy it. Wait, wait, and can I ask the question? And we're all wondering, um, yeah. did it hurt? <laughs> you know, it, it does hurt. Uh huh. It, my nipples hurt a hundred times more than my dick did. Oh, really? And uh, uh, the Prince Albert, um, I mean, if you think about it, it's going through such a thin piece of skin because mm. it just goes right through your, your urethra. Uh, it healed a lot quicker. Uh, mm -hmm. 
you know, our piss is essentially um, like a sterile wash. Yeah, it's a sterile wash that that kind of cleanses it every time you pee. So my my PA hurt some. Uh, I was one of the fortunate ones that didn't bleed a lot. I know some people have that experience where they bleed for several days after they get pierced, but I was lucky that I didn't bleed and uh, it healed really quickly. And it, it's one of the things that I'm so grateful I did because um, I'm circumcised and having that PA really heightened my sensitivity when I'm mm -hmm. having sex. Any, any, any type of sexual act, jerking off, getting blown, uh, having anal sex, uh, it really made my dick super sensitive. So mm -hmm. um, <laughs> sometimes I'll refer to it as my, my metal or artificial foreskin because <laughs> it's actually made my dick more sensitive. Oh, wow. Well, as a Latino as well, who did not have the choice of being circumcised when I was a child, uh, maybe I should start getting myself some piercings. Hmm. I'll hold your hand through it. <laughs> now, have you done urethral sounding? I have not. Okay, I was just curious if, if, if that was a similar sensation. But anyways, sorry, keep going. Um, I forgot where we were going. You were <laughs> you were it ends your sexual sensitivity. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I prefer to, to keep it on any time that I'm, um, I'm partaking in any, any type of sexual activity. Mm -hmm. uh, every once in a while, though, I'll, I'll take it off um, because... Uh, some people do get freaked out by it, uh, and uh, so for the right person, I will remove it mm. uh, and have sex without it, uh, but I do prefer uh, to fuck when I have it on. Got it. Got it. Wow. So I, it seems like you have a very kinky, I don't want to say upbringing, but origin you know, Aww, you're so sweet. So let's talk about more of your kinks. Uh, what what are some of your favorite kinks? Um, so you know, I think we we share one, which, as you know, I, I'm into I'm into water sports. Mm -hmm. um, as we've been talking, I've been hydrating because I <laughs> I thought that we were going to be doing this on camera and that I would at least get to piss for you. Oh uh, well, I got my FaceTime here after our and, interview and, and watch you get hard uh, as you watch the piss come out of my dick. Uh, so that's one of them okay so uh, full disclosure you guys we have been flirting like the whole day so <laughs> <laughs> oh god so water sports <laughs> yeah so water sports i'm into smells i like musk uh, mm -hmm. i love pits you know one of my rules is that if you're gonna have sex with me never wear deodorant because that's one of the first things that i will go for is your pits Okay. Uh, I like mine licked too, uh, but I do enjoy the taste and the smell uh, of a set of musky pits. So, it is it is it like the like the body odor musk, or is it just like not having worn deodorant so you can lick it and and not have like deodorant and get it in your mouth and it's, stuff? It's the smell. It's the natural scent. Okay. Uh, I think there's a fine balance between musk and bo. Mm -hmm. uh, bo doesn't really do it for me. Okay. But that smell, uh, uh, my former pup used to call it hard work, the smell of hard work. Ah, okay. Uh, I love coffee, so he used to tell me that uh, my pits always smell like coffee and hard work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that smell of, uh, yeah, you know, I've been walking around in the sun and uh, lifting some heavy shit, and I'm um, just laying in bed waiting for you to fuck me. Uh, that that manly musky smell really turns me on, and um, mm. 
there's a very specific taste to it that also turns me on. Um, I, I'm a voyeur. I, I love watching. I love looking at people. Uh, I love putting myself in situations where I get to see people do things that maybe they're not supposed to be doing in uh -huh. that location. I am an exhibitionist to some degree, but I think I'm more of a voyeur. I enjoy that role play dynamic of, you know, daddy boy, sir boy, which I, I, I gotta say, I gotta attribute to that the impact of the, and, the, and, and the impression that that demo that I saw at Cinematic that first night I went to, you know, uh, made on me of seeing that dynamic between that dominatrix and, and her slave mm -hmm. and that connection and the total control that she had over him. So, you know, I, I, I like taking on that role of daddy. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I have a lot of boys that, that are fortunate enough to refer to me as daddy. But, you know, I also take that role, I think it takes, it takes on for me more than just a sexual role. I think it also has a, a mentor aspect to it, you know, where I okay. enjoy mentoring uh, younger kids, uh, younger individuals. You know, I've, I've found, uh, and I think this goes back to our previous conversation uh, about coming out, I've found that a lot of younger guys don't always have that close relationship with families, with their families, with their fathers, and they're always looking for somebody to model behavior after. So mm -hmm. I, I take on that daddy role, that fatherly role that I hope, and I mean, I, I hope that I'm, I am actually uh, modeling good behavior, you know, and, and mm -hmm. how to be a responsible uh, leather man, leather person, uh, kinky person within the community. I enjoy cum. I mm -hmm. love the taste of cum. That's why I was telling you that, uh, you know, when we were flirting er earlier and uh, I told you that I was going to piss in a cup for you and <laughs> I do know you like sounding. Yeah. So when you shot your load and the sounding bar came out, I was going to make you taste your cum and tell me what it tastes like. Ah. Because I really love watching people eat their cum. Oh my God. And I love having them describe the texture, the taste of it to me. And um, I love eating it, too. I, I eat my cum a lot. <laughs> Whenever I jerk off, I, I taste it. I, I eat it. I don't let it go to waste. Uh -huh. um, I've recently gotten into fisting. Uh, I think it's over the past year or so, um, which I find to be one of the most intimate experiences that I think I've ever had with a man. You know, it, it doesn't always lead to penetration with my penis or ejaculation, but just the process of getting my hand up their ass mm -hmm. is so fucking intimate and sexy because there is that very slow and constant communication that you have to have between the two of you to make sure that you're not hurting him, mm -hmm. that they're enjoying the experience. And to make sure that what you're doing to them is actually enjoyable. I, there's nothing better than getting in there and starting to discover all these little spots up their ass that they didn't know uh, were erogenous zones for mm -hmm. them. And uh, just seeing their body kind of just go into... Uh, I've seen guys actually go into semi-convulsions from <laughs> the electricity that flows to their body when I hit a spot that they, they had never known they had. Wow. Um, I enjoy leather. I enjoy wearing leather, too. Um, you know, I, 
I've always loved wearing leather. Um, as, as I mentioned to you, I was, I was part of that alternative group in high school, and um, I remember my first piece of leather was a biker jacket that my parents got me when I was 16, uh, which I, I used to wear to Maryland's, by the way. <laughs> but, um, you know, I felt really safe in that jacket. Uh-huh. Uh, it was almost like a shield, like armor protection. And I think my first piece of leather to which I have a sexual experience and connection to was a pair of biker pants that I bought that I still have, by the way, that hmm. that fit me like a glove. And I, I remember putting them on in the fitting room and looking at myself and just seeing my dick get hard and grow down my left thigh, which I hang to the left, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that We're learning so much about you. I know. <laughs> see? I'm an mm. open book. So you could see your dick through the pants? Oh, fuck yeah. They're so tight and they're made out of lambskin. Mm -hmm. So it's very lightweight leather. And it was so fucking hot to see my dick just starting to grow and that bulge. I guess it wasn't, it wasn't really a bulge, but to see the shaft growing and, and kind of becoming visual through the pants Yeah, that, you know, when I want to feel sexy, I put those pants on and, <laughs> and it's fucking on. <laughs> oh man. Wow. That sounds so sexy. Well, let's, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about leather. I mean, you've, it seems that you've had like this whole journey through kink. Yeah. But you are, you know, Mr. Long Beach leather. I am. <laughs> so I was. You, you, yeah. You, I mean, you, you will always be the title holder for your year. But what was your journey like to becoming a title holder? Um, I honestly never in my wildest dreams thought that I would ever compete for a title. Mm -hmm. I remember that I was at Pistons here in Long Beach once. Which is not Pistons anymore. No, it's an Eagle 562 now. Mm -hmm. And one of the previous Mr. Long Beach Leathers, uh, his name is uh, Nicholas Keith. Him and his husband, Bert, actually own the, the title of Mr. Long Beach Leather, or they used to own it. I don't know if it's uh, switch hands by now. Mm -hmm. But I remember that one time Bert looked at me at the bar and he said, you're going to run for Mr. Long Beach Leather one day and you're going to win. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> he prophesied like, right in front of I you. Like, and I was like, no, I'm not. He's like, yeah, you are. I'm going to make you do it. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I didn't think anything of it, but I decided to run when I did... Uh, because I felt that the community lacked representation by Latinos. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you look at everybody that's been Mr. Long Beach Leather up until maybe the late teens, uh, they've all either been white or black. And Latinos make a pretty large percentage of the population here in Long Beach. And I, I felt that there was a need for them to be able to see themselves in that position, to be able to see themselves, one, as a leather man, and also in a position of power, mm -hmm. you know, if you will. And, you know, we can have a, a lengthy discussion about whether being a title holder really gives you power or whether it's necessary to make change. You know, I, I have my, my views on it. But nonetheless, being able to see somebody on a stage in leather that looks like, like you, mm -hmm. I think 
makes it a lot easier for you to feel comfortable in that community. So um, ultimately, that's, that's what made me run the year I did. And I mean, it's true that the visibility is so powerful. And I don't think a lot of people realize it until it's set before them. And I, I mean, I'll just speak really quickly on my experience, which I've, I've shared before. When I went back to the Eagle for the second time and I, I wanted to wear my harness out, I was worried that because of the men that I saw, they were manly men. And mm-hmm. that's just not me. I'm like, am I going to get like teased? Like, who the fuck is this yeah. twink in a fucking harness? Who the hell is he? Like, you know, we have that worry. But had I seen someone up on that stage that looked like me, I probably would have been like, oh, well, that must be okay around here. <laughs> like, Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, I think we we tend to think of the leather community as being very inclusive, right? Because uh, of the fact that uh, we're not part of, I guess, what you would call the mainstream gay community. Uh-huh. Um, but, it, you know, it, it does end up being very clicky. We're, we're just like any other community. And uh, I may get in trouble for saying that, but... Uh, but we do have cliques. We do have little groups that are not very open to welcoming new individuals. Mm-hmm. There are other groups that do, and uh, uh, you know, and, and and I think it's great that we have them, and I think it's great that we have groups like Onyx that that uh, are for people of color mm-hmm. and that do actively uh, recruit people. I, I guess not necessarily to join their group, but recruit them in the sense to make them feel welcome within leather spaces now from your title year Mm -hmm. do you was there any one moment during your title run that really sticks out to you that where you were like wow okay this was worth it so i mean i think i I really really enjoyed my year i i started a campaign that was called we are one which was intended to kind of weave the the spiritual aspect that i i see in in leather and kink and in sexuality Mm-hmm. Uh, with the idea of, of inclusion and visibility. And the whole intent of that, that campaign was to create spaces that were welcoming of everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I, I might have shared with you during that initial interview that we did uh, what my spiritual philosophy is. And I, like you, um, I'm a born-again Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, should, I should say a recovering Catholic. <laughs> yeah, recovering Catholic. Catholics, I like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm a recovering Catholic. But in my life, I've always been a very spiritual person, ever since I was a, a little boy. Um, you know, I, I could never reconcile why, uh, how there was a heaven and hell and how to go to heaven, which everybody thought of as the place that you wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. You have to believe in a certain thing or a certain person or a, or be part of a certain group to be able to have access to that. I couldn't reconcile how somebody who spent their entire life doing nothing but, but good deeds would go to hell simply because they weren't part of a specific religion. Uh-huh. Or how somebody who was part of that religion who was always fucking people around automatically had uh, a, free you know, pass. a free pass to, yeah. to heaven. So I, I always question religion, and as an adult, I discovered a philosophy. It's called the, the science of mind, uh, and I started going to a church in Culver City called Agape, and it's a, a non-denominational group, and essentially the belief is that, that there is a higher power, that there is this energy that has created everything that is, was, and ever will be, that created 
every single one of us mm -hmm. and that that energy floats through all of us and it's what connects each and every single of us together to one another and to that source that essentially we are one we are one with that being we are one with that power and so you know whatever i do to you i'm doing to myself mm -hmm. and whatever i put out is what i get because it's this co continual continuous circulating energy that goes back to the source and to everything that is part of that source but yeah so i i took that concept and wanted to manifest it into an inclusive space and that's how i i came up with that we are one campaign and i i had these events when i was during my year that were called uh, leather cruise and the idea behind those events were to progressively start opening the bar opening up that leather space to people that you would normally not see in those spaces mm -hmm. uh trans folks uh, non-binary folks women and i did it progressively and slowly because i think that sometimes when you just slap something in front of somebody's face it completely turns them off yeah i think when you progressively start acclimating people to something new they're more receptive to it mm -hmm. So, you know, we had several leather cruises. The original one was actually kind of fun. It was intended to kind of take us back to the time when cell phones didn't exist. Ah. And we actually had to cruise the bar to meet people. And uh, we ended up having it include uh, hankies and the hanky code. And as I was promoting the event, I was slowly giving people some of the history and background of what the hanky code was. Uh, we had hankies available at the door. And the whole idea behind that was that you would come into the space and start getting to know one another, hmm. getting to tap into people that maybe had the same interests as you. You know, when you saw somebody with hankies either uh, on the same side of, of your back pocket on opposite sides, which is even better because then you can go out and actually do something about it. Uh -huh. Or, you know, you didn't know what the hell that red hanky on the back of somebody's pocket was and then you would go and ask somebody hey what does that mean and start a conversation and start that dialogue you know and that led to the the second leather cruise in which we actually started doing demos and led to subsequent leather cruises where i started bringing in female doms mm -hmm. as well as trans folks and non-binary folks doing demonstrations and actually being and putting them in that position of power mm -hmm. where they were the ones that were educating and they were the ones that were actually sharing not only uh, their knowledge about that specific kink or specific activity that they were demonstrating, but also about their own experience as human beings. And I think one of the most rewarding moments in my entire title year was during one of the leather cruises and hearing this older white guy who had been at the bar for a very long time and was very kind of uh, standoffish, you know, and, and seem very old guard. I heard him say, oh my God, the women are so much fun. We should have them over more often. Mm. And so when I heard that, I was like, yes. <laughs> oh, that makes me feel so warm. I love that. Because you. here's the thing is, like you said, instead of putting it up in people's faces and it becoming 
abrasive. You gave, you provided a space where it was safe to experience something. Mm-hmm. And that person had an experience that resonated with them. Yeah. It's not like you got up in their face and said, you need to, you need to do this. You need to accept the change. You need to accept all, all this stuff. Or your beliefs are wrong. You're right. outdated. You need to come and get with the program. No. And, and, and I think that that's, wow. that's, that was the beauty of it is it was this progressive exposure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To what it is, what 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 King can and should be, wow! Uh, and so, yeah, that was. I think that was one of the highlights of my entire uh, title year. Um, the other one being uh, the Gay Pride Parade and and marching the parade and mm-hmm. and actually meeting people and having Latinos come up to me and hug me and say, we, you know, we love you. We're happy you're doing this, uh, which kind of validated what I was telling you earlier about the need for visibility and the need to have somebody uh, out there representing communities that are often underrepresented in leather. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm curious to know, did you have any other aspirations or goals that you had set out for yourself during your title year? I mean, yes. So so besides that whole uh, goal of making the leather community more inclusive, uh, one of the other things that I, I actually wanted to bring focus on was was mental health mm-hmm. both mental health awareness but also the need to end the stigma associated with mental health mm-hmm. i've i've been a mental health advocate i think pretty much all my life i mentioned earlier how uh i started therapy as a as a kid uh, when my parents knew that i was different but throughout my life, I've actually been in and out of therapy. And, uh, you know, I personally actually also suffer from anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. for which I've been taking meds for, for years. Uh, meds which, by the way, have completely changed my life. The Louise before meds, or I should say the Louis before meds, mm-hmm. and the Louis after meds are two completely different people. And I've made it a point to be transparent and open about that because I think that the more people hear stories about others struggling with mental illness and with mental health-related issues, the more likely they are to seek help and to feel okay about it mm-hmm. and to have it not be such a, a thing that is associated with shame. You know, just like we went through that struggle and that fight to destigmatize HIV uh, and being HIV positive, I think uh, as a society and as a community, we also need to uh, work hard on destigmatizing uh, mental health related issues because, you know, it's it's part of who we are. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, taking a pill to uh, deal with my anxiety is no different than the pill I take for my cholesterol. You know, it's it's helping the body be the most optimum it can be. So, um, you know, I, I, I held various events also during my, my title year to raise awareness about mental health related issues, to connect the community with resources that are available, especially to youth, uh, and also obviously to raise money for these organizations, these nonprofits that provide these services to the community at either no cost or low cost. So um, that was another thing that I was very proud of. In fact, you know, if, if I had made it to the top 20 at IML, which I didn't, 
that's what my speech was going to be about. Mm. It was going to be about overcoming that stigma and about dealing with uh, my own mental health issues and how we need to all support one another through that process. Absolutely. Well, Louis, I, I want to thank you for spending so much time and, and being so transparent with us. I do want to, before I wrap up, ask you a couple more questions. Yeah. I mean, out of the, out of your whole journey, we, we've heard from the beginning coming out and coming to terms with your homosexuality and everything that went into that up until today. For you, if you were just to pick a few words to describe what does leather mean to you now, after all of this, mm-hmm. what would that be? To me... Leather is the ability to love and be loved for who and what you are. Mm -hmm. That would be it. You know, leather loves you whether you're having vanilla sex. Leather loves you whether you have three cocks up your ass and one in your mouth and you're tied up with nipple clamps. Leather loves you regardless of who you are. Yeah. Uh, So... That's what I'm saying. I think. I think. To me, if I was to sum up what leather is, is it's love. It's it's uh, it's something that loves you for who and what you are. Hmm. That's beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing those words. How can we stay connected with you? How can we reach out? So I'm on Instagram at Louis Ramrod, and you can also find me on Twitter. Although my Twitter feed is mostly political, mm-hmm. uh, you won't see naked pictures of me there. Uh, but it's the same handle at Louis Ramrod. My Instagram is private, though, so if you want to get connected with me and uh, you know you 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 found me through this podcast, uh, shoot me a message so I I can accept uh, your request. Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome. Well, I want to thank you again, Lee, for coming on the show. Do you have any last words for our audience before we part ways? Yeah, I, I think. Well, first of all, I, I want to thank you for having me on. Uh, it, was, it was actually a really great experience. And um, I want to thank you also for doing this, Brandon. I think that it's important for mm-hmm. these stories to be recorded and all these experiences to be shared so that everybody out there that is uh, at whatever step in your journey you're in, uh, so everybody knows that they're not alone and mm-hmm. that there's other people that have gone through the things that they're going through. And hopefully seeing that we are here telling our stories gives them hope and that there is a way out of whatever situation they may be in Mm -hmm. and that it does get better. Uh, I know that sounds really cliche, but it actually does. Uh, Life will never throw at you anything that you cannot handle. Mm -hmm. It may seem like you can't, but it's there because you have the wherewithal and the power to get through it. Uh, so stick with it. You are perfect, beautiful, whole and complete. You're part of that energy, that oneness with that thing that created you. And you're going to come out at the other end becoming a bigger and better version of yourself. Uh, so I'm grateful for this opportunity to share some of my experience and I'm hoping that they help to uplift you a little bit and to, to let you know that you're, you're going to come out of it. Mm-hmm. And that you one day will probably be here sitting, talking to Brandon uh, <laughs> about all these beautiful life experiences that, you, that you've had. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Louis. Well, before we go, you guys, don't forget to check out the many outreach programs we have available to us here in the Los Angeles area. 
The LELC Cares and Buller Bear Pantries are some ways that you can get assistance during these trying times of COVID-19. I will have links in the description below. I would also like to invite any of you listeners out there who may have never had been a part of the Leather Talk Zoom party before to come and join us on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, where we live stream a portion of the podcast and have an open discussion with the guest of the show that week. All audience members must be 18 years or older and must have their camera turned on, and all attendees are expected to maintain a mature and respectful attitude towards one another. These Zoom events will become less frequent as we begin to open up, and hopefully we can start to have some more in-person events coming up soon. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet and Twitter as Brennan Bullet LA. Thanks again for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky.